Perhaps some of you noticed on uh, KVIE on uh, Tuesday night, this last Tuesday, a Nova show. Nova, of course, is always excellent. Um, and they re-aired a, a documentary done some years back, I believe, titled This Old Pyramid, where uh, the episode revealed some of the ancient secrets of how the pyramids were built. It was This was done by actually attempting to build one. And according to my uh, promo guide sent to me every week as a subscriber, Egyptologist Mark Lehner and professional stonemason Roger Hopkins joined forces in the shadow of the Great Pyramid of Giza to put clever and sometimes bizarre pyramid construction theories to the test. I'm sure a lot of you saw this program, and we thought it'd be an interesting topic to, to spend a little time on. And uh, joining us now is an associate of uh, Egyptologist uh, Mark Lehner. That would be Matthew McCauley, who was one of the co-founders with the Ancient Egypt Research Associates, and he's here to talk about um, the organization and, and what, what they do. Matthew, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thanks, Doug. Glad to be here. Now, you got involved in studying ancient Egypt. How did that happen? Well, I was actually living in Canada at the time. Um, I'm Canadian by birth, and I got very interested really through reading some books uh, about a, an American psychic by the name of Edgar Cayce. Cayce had made some, I don't know, a variety of different kinds of predictions, but one a group of them focused on ancient Egypt and past lives and all kinds of uh, metaphysical notions about Egypt having to do with Atlantis. So these I was reading when I was in my late teens, 17 or 18 years old. And uh, so I finally wrote a letter to the Edgar Casey Foundation in Virginia Beach and received a, a quite a welcoming response from Hulin Casey, who was the son of Edgar Casey, and he encouraged me to continue my research into the, uh, into the ideas that, that his father had uh, propagated, and he put me in touch with a young anthropologist who they had just sponsored to go to Cairo by the name of uh, Mark Lehner. So I did write to Mark, and I subsequently went to Cairo and met with Mark, and it turns out that we had both sort of begun our quest into Egypt based on the ideas of uh, metaphysics and past lives and all of these kinds of notions. We were to find as we went along, though, that we were going to radically change our point of view and our basis for working, and uh, this happened fairly rapidly in the, in, in, during the 70s. And uh, what did you get involved in doing over there? We gradually were able to uh, establish a relationship with the Antiquities Department. We were doing some small projects and eventually did a project that tested uh, the validity of one of the claims of Edgar Casey, which was that there was, in fact, this hall of records underneath the right paw of the Great Sphinx. And we were able to bring a crew from Stanford Research Institute and a team from Chicago called Recovery Systems International to the Sphinx, and we did remote sensing, resistivity, magnetometer surveys, and so on, to look to see whether or not there was, in fact, some sort of a cavity underneath the Sphinx that might hold this uh, this library that uh, was allegedly there, according to the Edgar Cayce uh, predictions. And we, in fact, found that there was a, an, an apparent space underneath the right paw of the thing. And at, at that time, uh, this would not happen in, in, in the present, but uh, during the 70s, we got special permission to, uh, to drill underneath the right paw of the thing. And, in fact, did find a cavity there, an, an open space, but it turned out it was just a natural fissure in the rock. We were able to put a camera down inside and illuminate it and look at it. I'll be and it was really at that point that any last hope that, uh, that the Casey prediction was, was true 
was uh, dispelled, and from that point forward, the mindset shifted from taking uh, a belief and trying to find evidence to fit it to reversing an order to, in which we would look for the evidence as we found it and then build theories based on what we found, which is really the proper way to go about it scientifically. Well, people are endlessly fascinated with, with the pyramids, and I think we should remind listeners that, that at Giza, that's where you find the Great Pyramid. People are fascinated by how these things were constructed. I mean, they were amazing Herodotus when he was writing about it 500 B.C., one of the first uh, tourist journals of, of traveling about. And people still are speculating how these things got constructed, and they did this program here on Nova. What, uh, what, what, what do you think about how they put, these, they put them together? Well, the details of it are uh, uh, something that perhaps uh, Mark Lehner would be uh, in a better position to answer. But I can tell you that basically we know that the, the stones that were used to build the pyramids came from quarries that were primarily located right there at Giza. We can see a large gap in the rock, a large hole that is about equal in volume to the, number, uh, to the volume of the stones that were used in each of the pyramids. So we know where the quarries were and we can see pretty clearly how far they had to be moved, uh, likely with ramps, and there are even presently still patches of the, the topography that indicate where the ramps were. It's, um, I think, fairly well understood, and, and there may be discussions that go on about the, the specifics of how the stones were positioned and moved and so on, but one thing to note is that the, while the exterior of the Great Pyramid uh, was at one time you know, highly polished, a beautiful white Tura limestone, and the, the top layers of, uh, of the uh, stone are fairly regular. The interior of the pyramid, uh, with the exception of the chambers, the, the king's chamber and the queen's chamber, um, the, the, the construction of the pyramid is pretty haphazard. Uh, there are stones and mortar and all kinds of things just sort of jumbled. Um, so it, it, it wasn't quite as symmetric a process as it might appear from the exterior. That is the, the popular image that these things are amazingly constructed and then there must be something very very suspiciously perhaps supernatural or people have speculated alien involvement, all sorts of crazy theories. If you look at them closely, they're, they're clearly man-made and, and efforts were made to, to uh, have precision where it was needed and where it wasn't needed, where, the, where they could do it as sort of a, you know, a fill. Um, that's exactly what they did. Well, Matthew, you're going to have to have you come back on the show and talk more about this. I was lucky to be able to travel to Egypt myself once in 1998. I was impressed by all of these these pyramids. The one that Saqqara, the Step Pyramid, the Ziggurat, I think is still sort of very uh, very photogenic. But it impressed me that one of the original pyramids, they were building wrong, and it sort of collapsed, and it taught them a lot about, about constructions of these things. The Bent Pyramid, I guess. Yes. The, there were a number of pyramids that came before the pyramids at Giza, and there were, uh, they were a learning process. Uh, where the angles were too steep, uh, where they began uh, at too great a slope and then had to taper off. It's pretty well understood in Egyptology that, that there was a great learning carried forward from every pyramid project. And Giza really is the pinnacle of that learning. Well, Matthew, you, you are going to have to come back. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to Egypt, but uh, before we go, anything you'd like to just add about our topic? Well, I think it would be fun to talk again, and, and there are a number of ways in which the chronology of construction of the pyramids and the Sphinx and the Valley Temple and the Sphinx Temple um, have really been refined to the point where we can see stepwise how they move through quarrying and building each of the monuments. It's, it's quite well understood uh, with, respect to, um, uh, with respect to time. 
fair enough. And when you come back, I want to talk about uh, about the finding of the mummy of Queen Hatshepsut, which we're not, which is a whole subject in itself. Okay, terrific. Matthew McCauley, one of the co-founders of the Ancient Egypt Research Associates. Uh, happy to have you speak with us, and, and we'll and we'll talk again. Thanks, Doug. It was a pleasure. Now, if I had known the line of When, uh, when Matthew comes back, we're going to have to clear up a couple uh, misconceptions, I think, that we might trace back to Steve Martin. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty sure King Tut was not, in fact, born in Arizona. And not to diminish the gravity of our, of our previous talk, but McMillan <laughs> just could not resist using that as a bit of bumper music. And in uh, another story related to ancient history, and, and uh, I guess you'd say guests on this program, we would note that... Uh, According to the UC Davis News Service, the success of wheat as a food crop can be traced through thousands of years of genetic change that occurred as wheat was domesticated for human use. This comes from the cover article of the current issue of the journal Science, and this features a story written by UC Davis plant scientists Jorge Dubkovsky and Jan Dvorak. We, of course, uh, spoke to Dr. Dubkovsky about wheat genetics a few weeks back. One might argue that this is the most important plant to human beings as it feeds more of us than any other. Anyway, we would refer you to Nature Magazine and to our own archives uh, for our discussion with Dr. Dubkovsky, who, of course, has to come back to talk about appearing in science, which is, of course, one of the world's premier scientific journals. Chris, this marks, this marks two weeks in a row. We scooped New Scientist magazine with our article about elephant communication uh, uh, some time ago, and we've managed to beat uh, science to the punch about wheat genetics. I don't mind saying we're quite tickled by this. And in some follow-up on the story we did uh, on last week's program about the thought of removing the cables from the back of Half Dome because someone did get uh, was fatally injured, Climbing Half Dome. Well, apparently over in Hawaii now, they're talking about, uh, you know, getting rid of the bikes that allow you to ride down Maui's 10,000-foot-high Haleakala volcano. Well, they're not talking about eliminating it altogether, but they're considering whether they should restrict the number of biking tours, the number of bikes in each group, and the spacing of the bikes. According to the article in the B, within the past several months, a man died of a heart attack after hitting his head during a downhill ride. A woman was killed when she rode off the edge of the road, and a bicycle tour leader severely injured his leg and hip when he careened into lava rock. I mean, as far as we're concerned, if you're going to take a bicycle 10,000 feet down a volcano, well, bad things could happen. I mean, this article mentions a 13-year-old boy cut up his knee and side when he failed to negotiate a turn. Well, yes, when you fail to negotiate a turn on a bicycle, you, you can get scraped up. This can happen anywhere. Anyway, when I was in, in Maui a few years back, I took that bike tour. It's, it's a great thing to do. It's really fun. It's very scenic. It's, it's a very cool thing, and I hope they can uh, you know, find a way to make peace with the fact that some... Tourists are going to get hurt. You know, as they say, uh, a ship in a harbor is safe, 
but that's not what ships are for. And in a considerably more discouraging news story relating uh, to uh, roads in exotic places, we have the following. China has begun paving a path up Mount Everest to make the trek easier for bearers of the 2008 Olympic torch. The Chinese news agency Xinhua said the 67-mile route to Kuomalongma Base Camp would become a blacktop highway fenced by undulating guardrails. China plans the longest Olympic torch journey in history, an 85,000-mile, 130-day route that spans five continents and goes up and down Mount Everest before ending in Beijing. Boy, you thought Chairman Mao's long march was an ordeal. Of course, it hasn't gone unnoticed that the inclusion of the mountain, which is on the border between Tibet and Nepal, is seen as China's way of demonstrating its sovereignty over Tibet, which it has occupied since 1951. The paving project came as a surprise to environmentalist groups, which had no immediate comment. I've not personally been to the... uh, the Chinese side of uh, Mount Everest or Koma Longma, but I did go through Sagarmatha National Park in Nepal, headed up in the general direction of the Everest base camp uh, on the um, south side of the mountain. I-, I must say the great adventure of, of that journey was the fact that you had to have a backpack and clamber up uh, trails to get where you needed to go. The idea of a 67-mile black-topped highway fenced with guardrails it's very depressing. All right, final item which we do not have time for would be the current issue of Rolling Stone's excellent article by contributing editor Tom Dickinson, which exposes the Bush administration's secret campaign to deny global warming. It's a hell of a good article, and you know, let's try and get Tim Dickinson to talk about it uh, on next week's program. We'll, we'll give it a shot. We'd also note in closing that uh, the current issue of Time Magazine with John Kennedy on the cover features a point-counterpoint about his assassination featuring Vince Bugliosi and David Talbot. We had Mr. Bugliosi on this program a few weeks back, and we expect that we'll be able to bring you Mr. Talbot as well in the weeks to come. Stay tuned for that. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Matthew McCauley and Mark Evanier, both of which we hope we'll have on again. We'll see you next week at the same time.